Well, hello. My name is Pastor Matt. I'm the pastor here at Grace Bible Church. And um, if you're listening to this, we're so happy to have you listening in. Um, for we for this past Sunday, our, our sermon, we had preached it, and um, the recording, for whatever reason, um, just it, there's a technical glitch or something like that. And so the sermon didn't record. So the sermon that you're about to hear is actually re-preached version of... Um, of that first sermon. And so the way that I preach, the way that I communicate, there's a lot of give and take with the audience. And so um, I kind of try to read the audience as I'm preaching and build up and um, try to hit points where I think maybe there's a little bit of confusion just looking at body language. And so um, if you're listening to this sermon, it will be a slightly different experience for you than if you would have been here on Sunday morning. That's just the way that I preach. But the only reason I say this, and just don't pretend... (laughs) That you are, um, that you were here on Sunday morning, is because I also believe in providence, and in fact, um, the the even though this is not our plan that we would record the sermon this way, this is God's plan, and God's plan was that you would hear this version of the sermon, not the one that I preached this past Sunday, but this version right now, and that it would be a blessing to you. And so, my, my hope and my prayer is for whatever reason that you needed. Uh, to hear this rather than what was here on Sunday, that this would be a blessing to you and that it would be encouraging to you and uplifting to you. And I just trust his providence. And what do you know? That is the topic of our sermon today. Uh, it's praise and providence. That's kind of the, the core topic which we discussed in our preaching this uh, past Sunday. Now, um, I, I said this in our church, and so there's there's a couple people in our church, including my small group, that I am working through the book of Ruth with, and there's also um, uh, someone in our church that I'm working, reading through the book of Ruth with one-on-one. Additionally, if you were looking to find out more about this topic of providence, I recommend John Piper's book. It's 700 pages. Fantastic read. It's great if you are trying to uh, have something thick to read, uh, and it's like a, a mountain to, cl- to climb and to accomplish. And, and the reason I just say all of that is because all three of those different uh, trying to take on providence and Ruth um, with various people influences me, and so I'm not intending to, uh, to to plagiarize or to copy anyone. Nevertheless, I think it's important to give credit where credit is due, and so, um, and so I'm uh, crediting those people in the life of our church in that book um, for help, really helping me think through some of these topics involved. So uh, we're going to be preaching from Ruth 1. This is the second in our f- uh, four or five part series through the book of Ruth. So we're going to be pre- preaching from Ruth 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 2, verse 23. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then we are going to get into God's Word together. This is what Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 19, says. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who sojourned or who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that um, that, that you had a design and that it's your purpose and your will that 
um, we would be talking about this topic today. So, Father, I pray that um, this exposition of this story would be a blessing and that um, it would be encouraging to the people who are listening to this. And, Father, pray that um, our church would be blessed with this. And just uh, pray for those who might hear this online, maybe somebody is tuning into this who uh, wasn't here, or maybe it's a friend of our church, or maybe it's, um, who knows, Lord, I, I don't know how someone might find this, but I trust that you do, and so I trust that you have a good and perfect plan for it. Pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi in Hebrew means happy or blessed. And you can imagine that the women's consternation when they've come out of town, the big hubbub is in the town, that the whole town is stirred up, there's this, there's this excitement in the town, gossip is spreading because... They've heard that their friend, the wife of Elimelech, the father of Malon and Kilian, Naomi, has returned from afar. Her, she had returned, she had, she had left Moab in a time of famine, and she had left, um, she had left Moab when everything else was um, falling apart. And so she came to her people, she came to um, back to her people from the land of Moab because she had heard that there had been grain. And yet she returned without her beloved husband, Elimelech, and without her sons, Malon and Kilion, because both the, all three of them had died in the famine. They had died and um, they had died in the land of Moab. And the only person she returned with was this young Moabite woman talked a little bit about this last week, possibly a princess, this young Moabite woman who had claimed to have faith in the God of Israel. Don't call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara. Call me Mara. Mara, of course, means bitter. It means empty. It means someone who's destitute and impoverished. And so Ruth says to call me or Naomi says to call me bitter. And yet we're going to see that despite her disaster, God is not absent this story. In fact, this is a story of God's providence. So our sermon today is going to have a three-part structure to our sermon. It's going to be a, a story of God's providence, and then we're going to have the purpose of God's providence, and then we're going to have responding to God's providence. The, a story of God's providence, the purpose of God's providence and responding to God's providence. And this, uh, so we'll, we'll see how um, God is in control, and then we're going to see where he is heading this story, and then we will see um, how Christians ought to respond to God's providence. So, of course, Naomi and Ruth return from the land of Moab, and they return to Bethlehem, which is, of course, Elimelech's home and probably Naomi's home as well. And they return right at the beginning of barley harvest. That's approximately around the beginning of March. And so uh, the story begins to pick up steam as, as the as the book moves from chapter 1 into chapter 2, it says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. 
And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. What we see here in this is that Ruth is going out to glean. Now, in the ancient Israel, and you can find uh, the, the instructions for this in the book of Deuteronomy, in ancient Israel, there was a welfare system that was set up for gleaning. And so gleaning is, the, is where those who are impoverished, those who are poor, those who are destitute, those who don't have land of their own, uh, or who have debts or no workers, uh, they would go, and they would go to a ripe field, and as the, the owner of the fields, workers were progressing through the field, uh, those poor people who needed to glean were allowed to go and pick up the scraps that fell from the harvest. Additionally, they were allowed to go and they were allowed to trim from the edges of the field that um, the owners of the field were not supposed to go all the way to the edge, but rather the edges of the field were supposed to be for the poor and the impoverished. It was, a, it was kind of like an ancient welfare system in the land of ancient Israel. And so what we see here is that this is exactly what Ruth is doing. Ruth is going out. She's going out to glean with all the other impoverished people. And she goes to uh, a place um, that is, belongs to a man named Boaz. And so she comes to this place. And, of course, Boaz is related to her late father-in-law and also her late husband. She comes to Boaz, and um, she sets out to go gleaning in the field behind the reapers. And she comes to um, this field that belongs to Boaz. And so we we see that this continues. Boaz himself first enters onto the scene in verse 4. And we see this uh, dialogue that he has with his workers all the way down through verse 7. It says this, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from her early morning until now, except for a short rest. So what happens is Boaz comes out, and he comes to his field, and he sees his workers reaping in the field, and, and, and he blesses them. He says, The Lord be um, the, the Lord be with you. And it's kind of a common greeting. And they respond, the Lord bless you. And so there's this fellowship. And uh, Boaz looks into the field and he sees that there's this young woman who's gleaning behind his reapers who he doesn't know. So he pulls aside the foreman of the crew, the man who's appointed uh, over the, the reapers, and says, uh, who, who is this person? Whose is this person? And the young foreman says, she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So this young worker is um, gleaning behind it, and she's coming. She's, and you can tell that this foreman is very impressed with Ruth. He's very impressed because she comes, and, and he very complimentary. He says she's continued from early morning until now, if you consider maybe it's the middle of the day, um, except for a short rest. This is very complimentary, and, uh, and the young man is approving of Ruth, and Boaz sees her out there laboring. So Boaz approaches Ruth, and he speaks to her in verses 8 and 9. And this is very significant, what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? 
And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And so Boaz comes, uh, Boaz goes out into the field and he talks to Ruth. He approaches her and, and he gives her these instructions. He says, don't go into another field and, and don't stop gleaning in this field, but keep close to the, the young women who are in this field. Um, and he says, don't, and he again reiterates in verse 9, let not your eyes be on the field, uh, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go behind them. Now this is important. What he says next is so important because you figure Ruth is a, um, she's a foreigner. She's not from that culture. She's not from those people. She doesn't know the place. She doesn't know the culture. She's very defenseless. And if somebody from these workers wanted to do something, there would not be anybody to protect her, anybody to defend her. And so this is very important what Boaz says says, have I not charged young men not to touch you? What is he telling her? He's telling her this is a safe place. This is a sanctuary. You can be at ease here. You can rest secure here. You don't need to worry or be anxious that somebody's going to come and that somebody's going to harm you or somebody's going to do something inappropriate. This is in the days before me too. And there would not have been ready recourse for Ruth if she needed to appeal. And yet Boaz is clearly telling her that this is a place where she can feel safe and secure. And so quite a, and so he continues, says, When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, I mean, we live in Maine, and there's water everywhere in Maine. There's water in the sea, there's water in the sky, there's water that comes out of the ground. But I grew up in a desert climate. Very similar to where uh, Bethlehem is. And there's, water's a rarity. Water's something you've got to pull out of the ground. It doesn't just come everywhere. It takes a lot of work to get water. And, and Boaz has had, had had his workers gather water before the beginning of the harvest day, apparently. And so he tells Ruth that she can drink from his water. This is important. That he's prov- not only providing protection for her, he's providing sustenance for her. It says, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, Ruth is very understandably a little bit uh, abashed by this. He says, it says in verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Very understandably, Ruth is... Um, Ruth is somewhat confused. Why would, why would Boaz be so kind and be so good to her? I mean, what, what had Ruth done that had merited such attention? It's a good question. And so Boaz responds, and we see Boaz's response in verses 11 through 13. says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So what happens here is Boaz responds and here's Boaz's reasoning. He says, well, one, one, I've heard everything that you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, how you came back from the land of your birth and your father and your mother, and you came with Naomi, and you came all the way back here to people that you didn't even know. And he says, may the Lord 
reward you. May the Lord bless you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So not only has has um, Boaz heard of the faithful deeds that she that Ruth has done for Naomi, but Boaz has also heard of her faith, how she's converted to worshiping the one true God of Israel, how she has taken refuge under his wings, and, and that she has found shelter and rest and comfort there. And of course, Ruth's response is, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Ruth here is, of course, she's, she's being very subservient. She's being very humble towards, um, towards Boaz's response. It's very telling. It's a very uh, beautiful picture that we have here of uh, Boaz's gentle words and, and Ruth's gentle response. Now, the climax of this story comes in verse 14. It says, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So Boaz welcomes Ruth to the table. Now, this is the middle of the day, and uh, you figure Boaz had probably had his young maid servants prepare a meal for um, prepare a meal for the for his um, for his workers. And, and yet his workers probably, I mean we don't know for sure, but almost certainly his workers are um, uh, ha- eating in the middle of the day. And, and you can just imagine it, Ruth probably didn't have money that she, or um, not money, Ruth probably didn't have a meal that she had prepared ahead of time. So if you m- maybe remember, she's kind of like that kid at recess who, um, kind of like that kid at recess who di- couldn't afford their own work, or who couldn't afford to bring lunch. And would just kind of go and play where everyone else is eating and pretend that they were distracted. But Boaz is so gentle because Boaz sees this. And so Boaz welcomes her to the table and says, come to the table and eat my bread. And, and, and by the way, here's some vinegar you can dip it in. That's kind of a delicacy that he is offering to her. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And so we see here that she comes and she sits with them and she has a good time with the guys. And, and Boaz says, hey, everyone who has leftovers, just give her the leftovers so she can take it home. And so Ruth takes the leftovers home and uh, he, she is satisfied and she has more than enough. And so after the meal is over, she goes back to continue her gleaning. Boaz turns to his young men and it says this in verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now, notice what Boaz is saying. It's so generous. It's so kind. It's so gentle here. First, Boaz says to his, his young men, let her glean among the sheaves. In other words, if she comes up close to you as she's coming and she's gleaning, if she gets a little bit too close, don't say anything. You know, it's like uh, we we have... We, we have this uh, idea of personal space, and you can imagine that the workers are trying to say, hey, keep, keep away, wait until we finish our job, then you can come and glean it. But Boaz says, no, don't do that. Just let her come up and glean really close. In fact, not only that, but when she comes up close, pull some out from the bundles for her. So they, they would bundle up this grain, and Boaz says, pull some out of the bundles for her so that she can glean that as well. 
So Boaz is being extra generous and extra kind here. He says, don't rebuke her and let her, let her glean this. And so um, we see the story continue in verse 17. In verse 17. It says this, so she gleans in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, I know you probably have an ephah memorized, but uh, an ephah is the equivalent, a dry ephah is the equivalent of about five gallons, which of course makes about 25 loaves of bread. Okay, so here's this young, young widow, and she's been able to glean this much and have this much uh, grain prepared for bread. And it, it continues. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what, she, the food, what food she had left over after being satisfied. Now, remember, Ruth had been given kind of the leftovers from the meal, and so she not only had some for herself, but she gave it to Naomi. And so Naomi is a little bit concerned. You know, her daughter-in-law is a city girl. She is kind of a... You you imagine she's, I don't know how much time you've ever spent around farmhands, but um, you can imagine that uh, Naomi is just thinking, ah, this is, maybe somebody's trying to take advantage of her. You're just being really naive. You got to watch your back. You got to be careful. And, and, and yet all of her, all of her worry um, vanishes and dissipates as she hears what happens. It says in verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And suddenly Naomi, as soon as she hears the word Boaz, as soon as she hears his name, all the light bulbs begin to go off. And she remembers Boaz. Boaz is a close relative. Boaz is a redeemer. That, that, that The fact that her husband Elimelech had died and that his land had been, uh, had been sold into debt, none of that is, is irreversible. That there can still be life for the family. There can still be somebody to redeem the family and provide redemption and salvation. And so um, Naomi blesses the Lord. He, or, uh, Naomi blesses him and says that the Lord is w- watching over them. In fact, the Lord has not forsaken either the living or the dead. That's the clear sense of what is going on here. And Ruth continues, Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That's a, so what happens is, um, Ruth tells Naomi, well, he said to come back tomorrow. And Ruth says, that is a safe place for you to go. It's good for you to go there so that you might not be molested. You might not be touched. You might, that no one would make advances upon you that are inappropriate. This is a safe place. This is a safe person. This is a sanctuary. You can trust him. And so it says that Ruth stays with him for until the end of the wheat and the barley harvest from the beginning of March till about the end of May, about three months time. So now here's my question, as maybe you've been reading along as you've been listening to this sermon. Here's my question. What is this sermon about? What is this scripture about? What is this passage about? What is this story about? How would you summarize all of this story? 
what is going on in this story. And I will, my, my understanding as I've studied and prayed and wrestled with these verses is this, that this story is about God's control over all things. That God is working and he's not absent in the mess. That God is actually behind the scenes and he's working all things towards the end, which he has. So a couple of a couple of indicators that we see this is starting going back to verse or chapter one verse twenty. This is Naomi speaking of what is the disaster that has befallen her family. Her husband has died, and they've had to mortgage their land, and they've lived through a famine, and and, and she's lost her sons. And she says, "The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me." Naomi has no doubt in her mind that God is in control, that God is ruling, that God is reigning over all of this. Again, when you go down to chapter 2, verse 3, it says that she happened to come to the part of the field. It's actually a lot more emphatic than maybe it sounds if, you, if you're a big fan of the, uh, the Hobbit like I am. J.R. Tolkien does this kind of thing. It's like by chance with quotation marks and the author's trying to get to see it wasn't just by chance it wasn't just random happenstance it wasn't arbitrary that that Ruth comes to Boaz but rather this is the Lord's intention all along and then even again when Naomi hears that Boaz is the one who owns the field that Ruth came to Naomi attributes this to the kindness of the Lord It's God's kindness and his goodness to the family that he has brought Ruth back to to Bethlehem to go to Boaz's field. This is God's providence. It's God's control of all things. We would call, we would call um, that God's working in the mess here, we would call it his providence. And the word providence here is God's intentional or purposeful or wise and prudent lordship. Okay, we, we, we would on the one hand affirm that God is in control over all things. But we would also affirm that God's control over all things is wise and it's careful and it's loving and it's good and it's personal. Now, right here, when I say that, that is totally against the grain. See, I think on the edge of it, our our culture maybe has a vague belief in some kind of force, some kind of God that is control over all things. If you've ever, you know, not saying that I have ever done this, but if you've ever seen this show, um, uh, How I Met Your Mother, what is the one thing that comes back every episode? It's the universe. And the universe is kind of this amorphous blob and these strings that are all connected. And that's what connects the whole universe. And that's what connects all history. And this is different than that. That is impersonal and it's benevolent. And you don't really have a relationship. You kind of just got to let it control. You got to let go and let the universe control. But this here, this is God's providence saying there's a king in heaven, there's a Lord who's reigning and ruling, that it's personal, it's done out of love, and it's done out of goodness, and that all all things that come to pass uh, are in his hand, that as the book of Matthew says, he causes rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Even this word, uh, when, when Naomi says she calls herself Mara, this is actually a reference to Exodus 15. See, in the book of Exodus, the, the, 
people of Israel come out of the land of Egypt. And God, if you'll remember, he pries off the grip of Pharaoh with 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And he brings them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And they sing this marvelous song in the beginning of Exodus 15. But then they get to a land where there's bitter water in the Sinai Peninsula. And they call that place Mara. Bitter. It's between salvation and their destination. And when, when Naomi says, call me Mara, she's acknowledging God has delivered me, God has saved me, but he hasn't brought me home yet. The promised land is still miles to go. And, 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 and on the one hand, it's an expression of disappointment because she wants her life to work better. And it's not how her life had been intended. It's not what she wanted for her life. And yet it's an acknowledgement of trust because she trusts that the Lord is in control. This is God's providence. It's his intentional lordship that, that God is directing all things to the end towards which he has it. To which maybe you might ask, and it's a good objection to raise, you're telling me, you're telling me that all that Naomi and Ruth experienced, the death of Elimelech, the famine, the loss of their heritage, the loss of their land, the loss of their honor, the, the, the death of Malon, the death of Kilian, the desertion of Orpah. You're telling me all that tragedy that they experienced, you're saying that all that tragedy that they experienced, that God was in control of that? To which I would say, are you telling me he wasn't? Are you telling me he wasn't in control of that? See, as a pastor, I have been to some of the dark places of this world, and I have seen some of the darker sides of human nature. I've looked malevolence in the face. I've confronted abusers. I've been at those deathbeds. I've been there at ground zero. I've seen what it looks like when everything falls apart, when those who you trust the most betray you, when the person that you wanted to believe in lets you down, when the person that you thought you could trust has betrayed your trust, when, when what you, the worst thing that could happen that you thought something worse still happens. I've been to that place and I've seen that darkness and I've felt the ground come apart underneath my feet and I'm going to tell you this and anyone who's suffered something real will tell you the same thing. It is far more comforting to know that there's a God who is in control than that there's not. That the comfort and the consolation that comes even, even when the ground comes beneath you, this, uh, this, uh, walls cave in, the sky falls down, even when your closest friends betray you, even when you get that phone call in a minute, I'm telling you, it is far more comforting to know that there's a God who's in control than that there's a God who's not. I'm just going to tell you, there, I, I've, I've been to a lot of deathbeds and I've looked a lot of these things in the face. And I've felt the sting of a lot of betrayal. And, here's, and I've suffered a lot of loss. And here's what I can tell you. I've never heard or seen anybody say, well, I'm just so comforted that nothing is in control and there's no purpose in this. <laughs> we want, when we face that darkness... 
When we face that disaster, when calamity strikes, it is comforting, though perhaps distressing. It's comforting to know that there is a God who is in control, that there's a God who's in the mess, and that in this cold and dark and lonely world, I am not forgotten. It's comforting to know that God has a plan, even if that plan does things that I wouldn't do. It's comforting to know that God is in control and He's working the mess. He's working the disaster. He's working in the brokenness to make every wrong right, to make everything sad come untrue. He's working to make the valleys into hills and the hills into valleys. Do you understand? It's comforting to know that God is at work in the mess. To which if you were a perhaps particularly cynical person, and I can get it because I have a cynical trait uh, strain in me, you might be tempted to say, you might be tempted to say, well, that's not proof of God's providence. And you'd be right, it's not. I mean, what I'm essentially telling you is, well, and suffering and in darkness, it is comforting to know there's a God who's in control, but it's not proof that God is in control. So which I say is true, but I don't know of a better explanation for the fact that every time somebody suffers disaster, and every time somebody suffers calamity, every time somebody suffers brokenness, I don't know of a better explanation for the fact that every time that happens, the gut response of the human heart is to ask, Why? than to say that we were built for it. See, the very fact that when disaster strikes, we want to know what is God up to, what is God doing, points to the fact that we were built in the image of God and we were built to believe that there is a God who's in control. And that even though the bindings are coming apart in our world, that we are not forsaken. We're built to believe that. And I just don't think you can explain that other than saying, It's true that there is a God who's in control and there is a God who is reigning and there is a God who has not forgotten me. There is a God who's working all things, all things towards his purpose. So maybe you would say, so what is that purpose? And so let's spend some time talking about the purpose of God's providence, the purpose of God's providence. And to really talk about the purpose of God's providence and how Ruth fits into that, I think you've got to go back at least to Genesis 12. In the book of Genesis, um, God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur, out of the land of Haran. And so God calls Abraham, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be mine. I'm going to give you all this stuff. Walk in my ways. To which Abraham immediately screws it up. See, there's a famine in the land of Canaan. So Abraham goes down to the land of Egypt. And in the land of Egypt, he lies about his wife and says his wife is his sister. And so, well, what happens? Well, Pharaoh marries his his wife, who's who he thinks is his sister. Well, the curse of God comes on Pharaoh because he's, you know, violating their marriage bed. And so Pharaoh gives Sarah back to Abraham and says, I'm innocent of your blood. Here, take all this stuff. And he, he loads Abraham and his nephew, idiot nephew Lot up with, with cows and livestock and grain and maidservants and manservants and says, here's all this stuff. Now get out. 
So Abraham and Lot, with their huge retinues, with all their cattle, they go out of the land of Egypt full, but they go out in the year of famine. And they go out to a land that normally could easily sustain the two. But in the year of famine, there's no way that the land of Canaan could have sustained all the livestock they brought with them, all the, the retinue, all the households ensued, tension simmer in Genesis 13. So Lot chooses to depart from Abraham. He goes down, he dwells among the, the fertile valley in, in the Jordan, and he dwells among the city of Sodom. Well, when we get to Genesis 14, the kings of the east come and they take Lot away on a raiding party and they take him up north and, and Abraham goes after him and chases him down and brings uh, Lot back at this point of a sword and they, they rescue him. And if you'll remember, Abraham um, refuses to give back, uh, refuses to take the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah, but instead just um, tithes off of all the loot and all the bounty to the king Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is the king. His name means king of righteousness. And he dwells over a city called Salem or Shalom and city of peace. And so Melchizedek uh, is this high, high priest king. Well, Lot, after he's been rescued by his uncle Abraham, still chooses to go his own way. And so he goes down to live in, in Sodom. Well, if you skip forward to Genesis 18 and 19, what is God is meeting out his judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he shows mercy and kindness to Lot. And so Lot is rescued out of that. And Lot and his two daughters go and hide in a cave because they are still too ashamed to meet Abraham to his face. And what happens? Well, Lot's daughters really want children. And so they get Lot drunk. And they, through Lot, conceive children. And that's from which the people of Moab come. Now, you got to understand this. This is the country which Ruth comes from, obviously. This is, where, this is Ruth's heritage. This is her ancestry. And at the founding of her family, at the founding of her clan, at the founding of her heritage, what is, what is the root? Lust, perversion, abuse, greed, Covetousness, incest, drunkenness. It's a family that deeply needs redemption. And it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake that God brings Naomi's family to Moab and Ruth to Naomi's family. And therefore, through Naomi, she, he, the Lord brings Ruth back to Bethlehem. It's all part of God's providence, not only to redeem Ruth and Elimelech, but also to redeem Moab and to redeem Lot. Well, if you know the, how the book of Ruth continues, Ruth has a, has a son named Obed eventually. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And David is king. He's the, he's the great promised king. And David likes to act a lot like Melchizedek. That's why he takes over the city of Melchizedek, which by his time is no longer called Salem. It's called Jerusalem. And David even names his son Shaloma, Solomon, king of peace. David even wants to be the priest king. But he's told that he's not a king of peace. He's a king of war. And so he can never, he can never be the next Melchizedek. But David prophesies about the day that a Messiah will come, that a Melchizedek will come, and he will reign as the priest king. He says this in Psalm 110. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, over half a millennia later, many years later, from the line of King David comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes and he is, he is the, the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of Lot. And he comes from the, from the people of Lot to redeem Lot through Ruth. And this chapter that we've worked our way through this morning is an essential link in the chain. It's an essential part of the story. It's an essential sequence, an episode that brings us to this climax, the birth of Christ. And yet that is not the purpose of providence. The purpose of providence is the death of the Son, not the birth of the Son. Acts 2.22 tells us this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by, uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, the ultimate goal of the providence of God was the death of Christ and his resurrection. That through the death of Christ and his resurrection, death itself might be put to death, sins themselves would be dealt with, and God could be restored to man and man to God. The goal that God is moving all of history towards is the climax of the covenant where Christ himself will die in the stead of sinners and will put death to death through Christ. And if Ruth and Naomi had never experienced the loss of Elimelech and they had never experienced the loss of Malon and Kilian and they had never been widows and they had never felt that famine, they had never felt that disaster come upon them, then Christ never would have come from Moab. And he never would have died the death that he died. He never would have been resurrected. This story is not wasted. It's an essential episode in the history of redemption. And maybe you say, well, that's God's providence then. What, what, I mean, if that's the whole goal of history, what, what are we doing now? Why doesn't God just end this? Well, if that's what, where it's headed, well, God's providence hasn't stopped. There are, are four goals for providence today. So let me give you, let me, maybe you say, well, there, that, that, if that was the ultimate goal, the ultimate trend towards which all history is heading, let me, uh, why, why is history still going on? Well, let me give you a reason. The ultimate goal of, of providence was obviously towards the death and the resurrection of Christ, and yet there's four additional goals, four purposes of providence that uh, flow out of that death and the resurrection. So the first one is this, to spread the gospel to spread the gospel. Romans eleven twenty five says this, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, the gospel is part of the goal of providence, the purpose of providence today is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that, so all you know, there's all these things that God is working his providence towards. And what is it doing? It's working to orchestrate the, the forward movement of Jesus Christ's gospel into the world. So that's the first goal. The second goal is to mature the church. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of this knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is properly equipped. With each, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the secondary goal of providence is that the church might mature. Um, it's so that the church might grow and to be all that God has, uh, has aimed for it to be. Now that's kind of where the Lord is uh, working to bring the church to. That's why he brings pastors and pe- preachers and elders and teachers into the church's life so that they can grow and mature. And the church would be all that he wants it to be. The, the third goal or purpose of providence that we might say is for our personal discipleship, our personal sanctification, so that not only as church, as the church may we grow, but so as individual Christians we might grow. Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 says this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short while, as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Part of the reason God brings suffering into our lives, part of the reason that God brings calamity upon us and disaster upon us is so that we can grow up, so we can mature. And it's not pleasant, but it's good. It's good. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But the the final reason, the final purpose, the final aim which God's providence is working history towards even now is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Book of Philippians says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That God is working all things right now to the glory of the Son so that one day you and I and every tongue and every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, here's what I want you to get from all of this, because there's a lot here. Here it is. Nothing is wasted. That brokenness that you feel, the tears that you shed, the blood that you've spilt, the toil that you've toiled, that is not wasted. 
That those times where you've gone into the valley and you never knew if you would come back out. That those times where you've stared death in the face. Those times where you've been betrayed and it cut you to the heart. That is not wasted. But God is using that for his own purpose and for your good. And he's using it to grow you up. He's using it to mature his church. He's using it to spread the gospel. And he's using it to exalt his son. God is not absent. God has not forsaken you. God has not abandoned you. I don't know what it is that made you listen to this sermon. I I don't know who you are specifically, but here's what I do know is that whatever is going on in your life, no matter how painful, no matter how pleasant, no matter how hard, no matter how much of a struggle, no matter how difficult, God is at work in the mess. He hasn't forsaken you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. And he will not rest until all of his designs are accomplished. Now, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz don't know any of that. Certainly not like we do. Right? I mean, they sure, surely I think that they probably had a glimpse of the Messiah. I think there's, you can reason some, some basic contours of what the Messiah would accomplish, but they didn't know the details like we do. Here's, they, they just, they know God is working and they trust it. And the way they act is admirable and emulatable and and I think that we can learn from it how we can learn from how they respond to providence in their day because it, it's the same way that we should respond to providence in ours. So let me give you four ways, four ways that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz responded to providence in their day. Um, here's the first one. Take shelter under his wings. Take shelter under his wings. Listen to me. It is a cold, dark, lonely world outside of the shelter of his wings. Life is rough and tumble and difficult outside of the shelter of his wings. You do not want to live there. So man, I, I, don't, I just don't know what all is going on in your life, but here's what I do know. There is a safe, secure place of refuge where you can find hope and healing. Take shelter under his wings. Uh, Number two, praise him. Praise him. Notice the change of perspective that Naomi gets between the end of chapter one and the end of chapter two. At the end of chapter one, uh, Naomi is bitter and angry. In the end of chapter 2, this is what she says about the Lord. His kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you hear that? Do you understand that? Ruth is, or um, Naomi's responding to the providence of God by praising him. Naomi is responding to the providence of God by exalting him and worshiping him and thanking him. 
I, I, I think that no matter what you are going through, you can be confident if you're a believer in Christ. You can be confident that you will one day look back on all that you've experienced, on all the valleys, all the ups and the downs, the difficulties, the hardness, the brokenness. One day you will look back on all that and you, can, you will see his steady hand. And when that day comes, you should praise him. But you should praise him now. Because even though you might not see the end, even though you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though you don't see the, the sun cresting over the mountaintop, he does. And he knows when, how much more that you might have to go through this. And he hasn't forsaken you. So praise him for that. Number three. And by the way, this third one might just get you through the day. This might just be what you need to pick up and go from day one to day two, from A to B. Put your hand to the plow, for I can say, get to work. Think about Ruth in this passage. Ruth has every exam, every, everything that someone would require for somebody to feel sorry for her. There's not a person that I know that would blame her for sitting in a ball and crying. There's, there's not a single person that I know that would blame her or, or uh, mock her for feeling a little bit self-absorbed in this moment. For feeling a little bit of self-pity, a little bit of self-hatred. And, and yet, what does Ruth do? What does Ruth do? She puts her hand to the plow. She gets to work. She knows that no matter what hardship happened yesterday, she still has to work today. And isn't that sometimes God's kindness to us? That when everything else falls apart, He doesn't remove from us the burdens of our labor. He doesn't immediately remove from us our work. That's actually God's goodness to us. That's God's kindness to us. Um, Ephesians 4 tells us this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's God's kindness. And finally, let me just say this. Be generous with what you have. Be generous with what you have. What you have was given to you by a loving God for just this moment. You might not be like Ruth. You might not be in a position where you've had calamity and disaster upon disaster upon disaster strike. And yet, God has given you something. Use it to bless others. I mean, here's Boaz. He has a field. He has work. He has all this stuff that the Lord has blessed him with. And what does he choose to do with it? Well, he chooses to help this young Moabite widow who is kind of naive and doesn't know her way around town. Use what God has given you to bless others. Here's what I, I want to appeal to you today as you're listening in on this. And this is, no, by the way, this sermon is about, probably by the time I'm done, it'll be about 10 minutes longer than my actual sermon was. But God wanted you to listen to this extra 10 minutes. But here's what I want to appeal to you today God is at work in the mess. 
And he hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forsaken you. And his salvation, though it might feel so very far away, is so very near. So whatever the difficulty, whatever the disaster, take refuge under his wings. Praise him for his providence. Put your hand to the plow and use what the Lord has given you for the good of others. Uh, This past Sunday, our church sang this wonderful song, The Lord is My Salvation. And I love the way that the various verses build. It says this, The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea, and I am safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. My hope is hidden in the Lord. He flowers each promise of his word. When winter fades, I know spring will come. The Lord is my salvation. In times of waiting, times of need, when I know loss, when I am weak, I know his grace will renew these days. The Lord is my salvation. And when I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is my salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, I pray now that you would bless this word, that you would grow and mature anyone who might hear it. God, I pray that this would be for the purpose of building up your church. God, it is in your kind providence that whoever's going to hear this, hears this. So we entrust it into your good and merciful and kind and sovereign hands. In the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.